Well, this afternoon is a very uh, special, unique occasion. I don't know whether we've uh, tried to have this kind of a um, collection of Dhamma sharings and uh, reflections, recollections in the past, but I always like to experiment and do, uh, try out a few new things. Uh, so today we'll have uh, 12 different speakers uh, from the uh, monastic and the lay community, those who have been involved with Amravati during its uh, foundational year. And so uh, hopefully what we listen to this afternoon, there'll be um, maybe some familiar old stories, maybe some stories we've never heard before, but uh, hopefully all of it will be something that uh, you can uh, take to heart and to reflect upon. It'll be something that helps to encourage and inspire you into the future. So without further ado, I'd like to invite uh, Ajahn Chandasiri to be the, uh, the first to take the, the seat. And uh, people have been asked to speak for uh, 10 minutes each, but we understand that in the, in the Buddhist world there's a certain thing called elastic time. <laughs> so there's a, a bit of latitude, but uh, we'll try and uh, keep to a, a framework so that we can uh, all be uh, <coughs> able to partake of tea at about 4 o'clock. So we'll uh, let the afternoon um, unfold, and uh, I'm very glad Ajahn Chandasiri is going to uh, set things rolling for us. Well, I must say it's a very, very lovely occasion for me to be here at this time and to see so many uh, familiar faces and also some people that I haven't met before. Um, as many of you will know, I was one of the first nuns to come here. And what you may not know is um, that I was actually really rather um, apprehensive about this whole new venture. Ajahn Sumedho had mentioned it several months before we were due to come here. In 1984, he'd spoken about this school in Bedfordshire that uh, was going to be purchased as a, a new home for the nuns. We'd slightly outgrown Chithurst. One of the nuns was living in a pigsty, and another couple of nuns were living in a tent on the top of the fort. And, yeah, there wasn't really a lot of space for us, and we needed to expand. Um, Ajahn Sumedha had many ideas about this uh, monastery, Amarawati, um, partly influenced by Venerable Master Hua in America, who had a very large monastic community with many very wonderful projects to benefit countless beings. And I think his vision was for something similar. Um, but I must say, I'd grown up, I'd spent my first four years of monastic life at Chithurst, and those of you who've been there will know it's a very, very beautiful place. And I was seriously reluctant to, to come away. Um, as a way of trying to encourage us, uh, one of our friends offered to drive myself and Ajahn Sundar up to have a look at the, the property before we came. And we drove past, and she said, yes, and that's where the nuns are going to stay. And I just thought, oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so we drove straight past and had our picnic in a field somewhere close by. <laughs> but fortunately, uh, this same friend had a very good idea and suggested that we might walk here. So we decided to organize a relay tudong. And uh, I, w I was very keen that it was an opportunity for all the nuns to participate. So we would walk for three or four days and then we would be replaced along the way. And um, just tell you about one particular day. It was the day after Venerable Miochioni's ordination at Chithurst. And I was a real purist. I didn't, you know, I, I, it seemed important that we continue the walk at all costs uh, rather than go back to the monastery for the ordination ceremony. So myself and Ajahn Sundra, we were waiting um, in um, a village 
close to where we were going to meet some people for our Bindaba offering the next day. And uh, we waited, and then the other sisters came and joined us. And then we walked to, um, we were going to walk to this little church. And the farmer had sown across the field, so the grass was very long, very wet. And we were struggling to get round the edge of this field. And there was a, a house with a very low fence, and we thought, well, we'll just nip through the garden and go to the church on the other side. And uh, then we could just explain to the owner if there's any problem about it, you know, if they're not happy. So we climbed over the fence into the garden, and immediately we were surrounded by policemen (laughs) with guns. (laughs) And they kind of ushered us into this garage, which was full of radio equipment. And uh, they were very mysterious about it. It wasn't at all clear. What was clear was that the person who was living in the house was under police protection, quite serious police protection. And uh, anyway, they, they interviewed us, they talked to us at length, and uh, wouldn't say who this person was, but um, anyway, we had our picnic with the person who was going to meet us, and we walked on. And uh, in the evening, just before we were arriving at the place where we were going to stay, a police car drew up, and the same policeman got out. <laughs> and uh, he uh, told us that we were under arrest for suspected arson. <laughs> And he bundled us into his police, well, two police cars, and they drove very, very fast, back to where we'd been two days' walk before. <laughs> so we spent the afternoon in the police station, and I knew that we had to behave ourselves. It, was, it sort of felt like, I mean, it was quite exciting. It was like a kind of challenge, a test, a spiritual test, you know, that we weren't going to get excited or lose our temper or anything like that. We were just going to be thoroughly cooperative. And we were very thirsty. They offered us some water, but I said, well, I was thinking to myself, why why didn't they give us a cup of tea? And then I thought, well, you're a prisoner. You're under arrest. (laughs) They don't give prisoners under arrest a cup of tea. You just just have to answer these questions. And anyway, we got questioned and searched. And I mean, it was clear to us that we were innocent. Of course we were innocent. And eventually they drove us at speed back up to where we'd been before. So that was good. And uh, we continued our journey. But there were many stories about these journeys. And in fact, after, after that particular incident, I was due to go back to Chithurst the next day. And I remember walking into the front hallway and meeting Ajahn Sumedho and telling him with great excitement that we'd been arrested twice. <laughs> and he looked kind of concerned. And it was, it was, quite an, it was a very concerning walk because it was the time of this awful rapist at large And I thought it was something to do with that, the reason we'd been arrested. And actually, I only found out about a couple of years ago that we'd actually walked into Maggie Thatcher's back garden. (laughs) She She was the prime minister at the time. And so that's the closest I ever got to meeting Maggie Thatcher. Anyway, we, we arrived, and, uh, it was, it was a very wonderful arrival, actually. Um, it was very lovely, and, There was rain and sun and rainbows and we walked around the meadow and uh, the goalposts from the school were still up and we walked into one of the retreat centre, it might have been what is the retreat centre shrine room now and we chanted Gianto and it was was really a, a very lovely feeling and it was a very, very exciting time in fact. I mean, as I said, we had been very reluctant to, to go. I was very reluctant I, I, and, and 
In fact, what, what I found was that once, once we'd arrived and settled, that there was something actually very lovely and very peaceful about the simplicity of the place. It was bleak, it was flat, the buildings were all the same, but there was lots and lots of sky, and there was something quite wonderful about that sky. And the simplicity was very, very calming for the mind. Anyway, there's a tremendous number of stories I could tell, and I think I'm probably nearly at the end of my time. How many? Three. Three, okay. Um, a little bit about the vision, actually, because it was, it was a very grand and wonderful project, and we honestly didn't have any idea which of the ideas would work out. I mean, it was pretty clear that the cremation ground was not going to work out. That was one of the proposals, to have a cremation ground, probably over where the Buddha Grove is, a little bit out of the way. And that, that kind of fell flat on its face because the neighbours were very unhappy about that suggestion. But there was talk about having an interfaith library. There was talk about having activities for young people, families. There was talk about interfaith gatherings. There was talk about big festivals. Um, many, many... Oh, there was a talk about looking after the elderly. Um, that was another idea that we, we tried for several years. For eight years, we looked after an elderly lady. Um, and the, the, in fact, there were two of them for a while. And it was clear that actually that was not going to be a, a long-term um, vision because it, it took too much of our effort to, to care for these ladies. And it was wonderful, wonderful practice, and there are many stories about that as well. Um, but it's interesting to me just how many of the um, original ideas have actually come to fruition. And the most amazing thing of all, of course, is this temple, this place where we can gather and where we can contemplate the teachings of the Buddha and have a chance for people to practice. Yesterday, 80 people came for a meditation workshop that I was leaving, leading, and I was just reflecting on how the very first meditation workshop I was at, I, I, I led here. There were two people. One of them was Martin. And uh, <laughs> at the end of the class, they both said, well, one of them said, oh, well, I, I'm afraid I can't come next week. And the other one said, yes, I won't be coming either. <laughs> <laughs> things have changed a bit. Anyway, I'll leave the others to share some reflections and memories of, of this uh, extraordinary um, phenomenon that we have here, Amarawati. Thank you, Ajahn. So I'd like next to call upon Barbara Jackson, uh, Upasika Subhadra, uh, who has uh, also many stories to tell, and uh, I'll leave it to her to, um, to share her offerings uh, with you all. This is the sort of thing that sets the heart racing. And you look at the seat and you see it's bright red and you think, yes, I'm on the hot seat. <laughs> so thank you very, very much, um, Ajahn Amaro, for inviting me to share some thoughts with you on this actual coming together of Amaravati. It's easy to find a place no problem. But to actually have a place that has a foundation and also can be maintained and to continue. And it seems to me that this is the miracle of Amaravati. Way back in India, in the stones in the British Museum, 
And here we have Amaravati in the UK with this extraordinary energy of support. Now, yesterday I was in the Dana queue and the gentleman opposite to me said, you know, I've worked for the United Nations and I have set up centers all round the world. I'll just get the words right. He said to me, you're the person who found Amaravati. How did such a place as this come to be? And this is a very good question that we can all ask in our own hearts. How did this place come to be? So this threw the whole of what I was proposing to say because I thought, well, it came to be many, many years ago. In my case, 1963, when you daren't say you were Buddhist, but you actually meditated. And I meditated for 12 years. And I used to say to this Buddhist husband of mine, you're the Buddhist, they say you should have a teacher, where's the teacher? And he gave the standard reply, when the time is right, the teacher comes. It was back to the meditation cushion, and the years went by, and three people independently said, there's a monk called Samedo, who's just arrived at Haverstock Hill. I think you should go and see him. So we went. And of course, what we're looking at here, in terms of foundation, is the willingness of one man, George Sharp, to see Haverstock Hill through a very, very difficult period of time. And I would like to honour George Sharp with much, much gratitude that he stayed the course of what? The course of practice. And it seems to me that Amaravati is founded on practice. Everybody at Haverstock Hill practised. This monk, Samedo, practised. Then along came Ajahn Chah. A tiny little man arrived at Heathrow Airport. I was flabbergasted. Everybody got down on the floor in the middle of Heathrow Airport and bowed to this little monk. <laughs> and then to make matters even more bizarre, he arrived at Haverstock Hill and it was after one o'clock. So nobody had the dinner. I thought, well, this is practice. This is upholding vinya. I don't understand it. And this is where we're all involved again. I recognize something which was worthy of support. So we supported them on route down to Chithurst. I lent Ajun Bajiro, then an Anagarika, my brand new car. <laughs> <laughs> to move, he, was, he could drive then, to move everybody down to Chithurst. Off they went, and as you've heard, Chithurst got full. Now, in terms of practice, we were on a retreat at Rogate, and Venerable Samedo said, 
you know, we could do with a place north of London. There's a great divide with London. We got settled down here as a training monastery. So Peter afterwards went up and he said, well, I am a surveyor, um, can we help? And then somebody looked at me and said, oh, well, that's fine then, so you'll find it, Barbara. And as one always does in Dhamma to a monk, you just say, yes, Bante. <laughs> <laughs> so, upholding Vinaya was the problem. Where in the UK do you find a building which has a separate roof in the property for monks, anagarikas, nuns, anagarikas, lay men, lay women, a kitchen? So Long Paul went to look at about two or three properties which in terms of square footage were okay, but in terms of vineyard, they were not. Now, we were getting a little bit desperate, and you know what it's like when you sit meditating. You can sort of say to the universe, I've got to find these roofs. I've got to find somewhere where there are lots of single-story roofs. Where is there going to be one? And the answer came back, well, junior schools normally have separate roofs and a single storey. So I phoned Bedfordshire Education Committee and I said, I'm wanting a school. <laughs> <laughs> and the woman on the other end of the phone, I haven't a clue who she was, she said, oh, where have you been? We've been waiting for you. We've got a school for you. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> Better go and have a look. <laughs> so Peter Barrett, who lived two doors up, happened to be county supplies officer for Bedfordshire County Council. And he said, yes, the school will be perfect. So I came to meet the headmaster. And you know what it's like? You drive up the hill and the energy starts to rise out of the ground. And as Sister Chandisiri says, you get here on top of the hill and there's this great sky. It was incredible. These children were so polite. The headmaster was welcoming. There were so many roofs I couldn't count them. So I gave Frida Wintering. She was one of the trustees of the English Sanger Trust. I said, Frida, you better come with me and have a look at this place. It might be right. So Frida came. And we sat in the entranceway to the Bluebell Wood, had a picnic, looked out over Gade Valley, and Frida said, yeah, it feels about right. So then all the monastic um, hierarchy came to have a look. And let me see, um, I don't want to forget people, so forgive me. This was the order. George came, Maurice Walsh came. These are important names, folks, to honour. Geoffrey Beardsley came. Everybody needed to come to see this thing 
that was going to emerge to fulfill the needs of the Sangha. Note the word needs of the Sangha. Then, who else did we have that was interesting? I know. Kunto Chalo Sambandaraksa. The ties will know Kunto. There's young Kunto and there's old Kunto Chalo Sambandaraksa. Well, it was the old Kunto that came. He said, Kunbabala. This is my dream come true. My wife has always wanted a place in Britain which is proper for nuns. This is the right place. There you are, sisters. <laughs> then Tanjav Kunpanyananda came from Thailand. And I was very, very nervous about that. And Lungpur Samedo said, well, he said, it's the official Thai um, delegation that's coming to have a look, Barbara. Uh, just put all your best clothes on, please, and make sure you look very <laughs> respectable. <laughs> so that was the next great important visit. And then, of course, as you know, um, the great um, uh, sort of deal was done when George Sharp miraculously actually sorted out the money. And I will remember that day because the completion of the purchase um, was formulated. Now, being a surveyor, Peter said, well, on the first day of completion to acknowledge ownership, we have to have somebody on the premises. And so Ajahn V, Ajahn Viridamo, who is now in Canada, and Ajahn Suchito, who is somewhere New Zealand. down under, New Zealand way, they came with an Anagarika. Peter and I were here, and it was really interesting. We, there, was, there was just one place that was right to sit, and it was the grass square in front of what is now the library. And we sat there and had this dana meal, and Ajahn V said, you know, folks, this place will never be the same again. <laughs> now, I tell you, folks, you can do these things if there is that quality of vision. These things don't happen without vision. And we all know who the great visionary of this was, Lumpur Samedo. Through thick and thin, money, no money, will it, won't it, is it, isn't it, shall it, shan't it, this was the vision. And so when the gates of the deathless realm were opened, it was a truly miraculous day. The Sri Lankan um, community were represented by Venerable Balangora Ananda Maitre, who happens to be a great friend of Peter and I, or was. 
It was just one of those joyous occasions, I think, because it was simple. We started with the refuges way back at Rogate on that retreat. And we start today with the refuges here, Amaravati, 2015. And the refuges in our heart, to me, is the the, the true, true Amaravati. Amaravati, the deathless realm, is in here, in each one of us. And I think we must be all very, very grateful that Nongpo Samedo had this vision to bring it about that we can come here to practice, take the refuges and uphold the precepts. <coughs> Thereafter, it's up to us. We have to continue supporting the Bhikkhu Sangha and the Sister Sangha. And we have to continue supporting each other in our practice because this is what enables Amaravati to manifest. So, with the man behind the server yesterday, I said, well, it comes about because everybody upholds sila. It comes about through devotion. It comes about through commitment. And perhaps the most amazing thing is, it comes about through giving. There is no charge. And the man from the United Nations, oh. So we agreed yesterday. Amaravati here is unique. And I said to this global source of information, it's unique globally. And he shook his head and he said, yes. (laughs) I said, as for it in the West, that is nothing short of a miracle that something like this can continue to offer the teachings of the Buddha and act as a magnet to which we're drawn. And we feel these teachings and we take them away and we practice. I hope I haven't forgotten anything, folks, but I think my time is up. What I would like to finish saying, and I hope you'll all join me in a deep offering of gratitude to Arjun Amaro, to take over from Lungpo Samedo, well, I wouldn't have liked to have done it. <laughs> he said to me, yes, he said, the big shoes to fill. So I told him that he was filling the shoes well. <laughs> I'd like in conclusion for us all to join together in three sardos and thank you to Ajahn Amaro. Sado. Sadhu, Sadhu, Ajahn. Thank you very much. I knew there would be stories I never heard before. So. <laughs>
By the way, the, uh, the, the person that uh, Barbara was mentioning, uh, Kun Cholo, he was the uh, head of the Thai Sugar Corporation. And uh, he, uh, he also was very good friends with Kun Wani Lamsam. And it was he who brought Kun Wani originally to, uh, uh, to Chithurst. And she became a great friend and benefactor of the Sangha over many, many years. So Kun Cholo has had a, a subtle hand in many ways in our community. So next I'd like to invite uh, Colin Ash to, uh, to come and speak. And uh, Colin was uh, the uh, chairman of the English Sangha Trust for many years. And before that he was, uh, and continues to be part of the Buddhist Society. But uh, he can tell you his stories for himself. Uh, really, I feel I'm sitting here as a bit of a fraud. You've heard the name George Sharp uh, mentioned. And, and really, uh, I guess George sends his apologies for absence because he's, he's unwell. Um, and, and uh, I mean, George is, is one of the two people, I guess, I most associate with everything that's gone on here. The other one, of course, is Lung Por uh, Sumato. Um, I, I mean, I feel a bit of a fraud, not just because I'm sort of standing in for George, I, and I didn't realize I was until about an hour ago. <laughs> uh, but, but because unlike, I, I suspect, everybody else, uh, who's going to say a few words this afternoon. I, I have very few anecdotes or indeed memories from 1985 about anything, um, let alone Amrawati. Um, what I do recall uh, about uh, the early days of Amrawati, and I, was, I would consider myself to have been an, an Amrawati groupie way back then, was what a bleak place it was with such grotty, uninviting um, buildings, uh, actually. Uh, and really what I want to say a bit about is what's happened um, since. It's changed a lot, uh, just in case you hadn't noticed. Uh, and actually the Sangha has changed a lot, too. Uh, monks and nuns have come and gone, and in, in at least one case, come back again, uh, actually. <laughs> but it's particularly the, the place, the site, the buildings, which have undergone a, a remarkable uh, transformation over the past uh, 30 years. Quite extraordinary. I reckon, I was trying to think about this uh, earlier today, I can think of probably uh, of only two buildings which look pretty much as scruffy as they did back in 1985. But everything else has been re-roofed, refurbished, looks pretty good. And then, of course, uh, as Barbara says, there's this remarkable uh, temple here. The temple, the cloisters, the abbot's kuti, all this is new and, and to me, uh, quite remarkable. Uh, and it came about as a result of generosity. And I will tell you one story now, uh, which a genuinely moving story as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't go back to uh, 1985. I don't, it goes back to when we're in the middle of building the temple. Uh, and uh, the EST behaves uh, very prudently, so we don't do things we cannot afford. And we'd got a lot of it built, but it was by no means finished. We reached a pause, and we paused because we had not got the funds, the support, uh, to continue any further. And so uh, I had to sit down and uh, think about ways of raising additional funds. So I went across to the office, and I got a printout uh, with the names of all the donors and all the amounts of money they'd given, and I just looked at it. 
And, of course, there were several, there were and there are several very large, extremely generous donors. But what rocked me to the core and almost brought tears to my eyes were the hundreds and maybe even thousands of us who had given 10 pounds, a fiver, 10 pence, uh, a large number of people uh, uh, gave vast sums of quite small money to support this place. And, and why? Because of the Sangha, and not just because of the Sangha, but because of this Sangha, and because of the quality uh, of this Sangha. And we looked at this Sangha, and we liked what we saw, and we thought it was worthy of support. When I look at the temple now, or when we look at the temple now, we can uh, admire the architecture and look at the oak columns and look at the brickwork and from outside admire the spire and appreciate the space that we're all sitting in. But another way of looking at it as being, as, as I do, as a, still as a trustee, uh, as sort of a, a monument, a mountain of dana, of, of, of extraordinary uh, generosity. I think that's quite remarkable and, and much appreciated, obviously. So over the years uh, since uh, 1985, I've had the good fortune to meet a lot of extremely generous people, many of whom are here today. And that's been a delight. But not only that, I've also made some very good friends as well. And I don't mean Kalyana Mitra, I just mean ordinary good friends. Lovely people that we're on the same wavelength, we can share a meal together, we can uh, share a joke, uh, and I don't have to put on my best Buddhist hat either. <laughs> just good friends as well. So generous people, just good friends. That's what I associate with this place, and it hasn't just happened, it's happened uh, over the years, since, uh, since 85 till now. And just to finish up, uh, I, I'm not, as I say, I, I, many good friends uh, as a result of... Uh, Amrawati and all of that and I, and I could not possibly mention all their names now certainly not in the time available and I'd miss some out anyway but of course I would like to single out two names one I've already mentioned George Sharp and the other of course as Barbara says Lumpur Sameda without whom any of this would have happened oh, Thank you very much indeed Colin uh, as he said he's uh, still uh, a member of the, uh, the board of the English Sangha Trust uh, served for more than two decades. That's a lot of committee meetings. Enormous amounts of minutes and agendas, so that's a great service in its own right. And next I'd like to invite Medina uh, to uh, come up, uh, was also uh, a trustee of the English Sangha Trust for many years, but was uh, also very, very uh, instrumental in the family uh, events here, uh, as they were developed, even have brought her, one of her daughters and a grandchild along today as well. So. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, Medina will share a few uh, recollections and reflections on the early days of uh, Amravati there they come back again <laughs> and uh, uh, the, particularly with relationship to the family life here yes back in 1984 I was a busy primary school teacher with three children who'd been born within two years and left me rather grey looking around the edges and I was practicing uh, Buddhism. I was reading lots of books. I was going on meditation retreats. And I lived in Hertfordshire. 
And there wasn't that I knew any place I could go and find a teacher or learn. And then this came up and I thought, wow, fantastic. I can go and I can be still and I can have some quiet time. And I said to my children, you stay with Daddy. Mummy's going to a really boring place you wouldn't want to go. You stay here with Daddy. So off I came. I got away with it about twice, I think. And then we want to come. No, you wouldn't like it. It's boring. We want to come. We want to see what it's like. So, okay, I'll take you and you'll discover it's boring. But they just appreciated what has already been mentioned. The space, the atmosphere, the joy of the place. They loved it. And I was never again able to come on my own. Um, But I thought maybe if there were some other children that they could play with, I might get a few minutes. So... I asked Lumpur Smedo if we could put an advert into the Forest Sangha newsletter. And I said, I'm sure there's other families with children. If we actually coordinated it so that we all came on the same weekend, they could play together. And so we did. We put a, we put a note into the Forest Sangha newsletter and families started then to congregate on a similar time instead of coming all at random times. And the Sangha were really supportive because they had always envisaged, envisaged this place as somewhere that would be open for, for lay people and families. And, and my impression was it's going to be full of sort of young men and women, all seekers of the truth. Um, I don't know what the Sangha expected it to be, but it soon got invaded by lots of children. And um, they very generously gave us a room, and it was painted by some nuns, I believe, with a big rainbow on the door. It was called the Rainbow Room, and it's now the Ubon Room. But it was furnished with everything from teddy bears for the tinies, stories, colouring books, um, all kinds of things that we could entertain the children with, keep them happy and enjoying the presence of the Sangha. So... We started having pseudo-Sunday schools, like people would come and, and lead some activity or facilitate something. And that was, it was really good, and we were covering things like harmlessness and not stamping on snails and all that kind of stuff. And I, so we, we'd, we'd take a theme maybe um, each Sunday, I think it was once a month we came over. And I asked my daughter, who's nearing 40. Do you remember the Rainbow Room? Oh, yeah, she said. They had fantastic cushions, triangular cushions, big square cushions, and we loved diving on them. And th- oh, oh, that's what you remember about the Rainbow Room. <laughs> okay, fine. That's good. Alongside the, this development of sun- Sunday activities for children, there were some local families who would go, come up for a weekend and camp and they'd bring their own food and have a little sort of peaceful weekend here with their children. And then two or three families and it, it was very informal. Now, I don't know how many of you, if you've got children, you probably do know that there's a very highly organised family camp takes place here 
in August, lasts a week, and it's highly oversubscribed. Lots of people would love to bring their children and your name has to go in a hat and be pulled out because there's far too many people to fit in. And it all started with those two or three families who brought their tent and their food and picnic books and spent a little time somewhere behind the retreat centre, I think. It grew. I see you. (laughs) Hello. There's one of our campers, our original campers. Um, so what happened was that, again, word got round and it started to grow. And in, in the end, the campsite was full, absolutely full of tents. And then we had good old English weather. We had a downpour. We were washed out, completely washed out. The tents were in a disaster state. So luckily for us, or was it luck? I don't know. The retreat centre was not being used as a retreat centre. So we all gathered our wet clothes and belongings and went into the retreat centre and we've never moved out. <laughs> we, we now... Pardon? That's how it happened. <laughs> um, so we have the retreat centre booked once, once a year for all the children. And um, there have been... It started off, as I said, very informally and rules weren't imposed... I think it's an, in a way that the Buddha grew the Vinaya. As an occasion arose that needed a rule, then a rule was imposed. But before that, there wasn't one. So we went into the Dharma, we went into the retreat center and we had all kinds of activities. We had morning pujas child-friendly morning pujas and they were amazing the children how they would sit so still in meditation and they just loved the chanting we taught them little bits of chanting and all that so we had real kinds of buddhisty activities but we also had the sort of things that you find in in any kindergarten or school where we've got art and craft and drama and circle dancing on the field and and it grew And it grew. And one year, I think, there were about 140 people. And the food that we were bringing, because people were bringing food and taking turns to cook in the kitchen, and it was starting to run out, so the people at the end of the line were only getting a little bit of rice. And I went over into the... Because it all works quite separately over in the retreat centre area. And I went over to the main sala and Lumpur Samedo said to me, how's it going, Medina? And I said, well, we're having fun, but I think we're learning a big lesson because there's rather a lot of us and there's not much food to go around. And the sangha came to the rescue again and there was a trail, armloads of food were coming from the sangha store over to the retreat centre to feed these families that hadn't thought they were going to feed themselves over the week. We had that kind of support in practical ways, like the food and a room, and a big marquee was brought up because we were so big we couldn't all meet um, in, in any of the rooms. None of the rooms were big enough. But we also had that kind of um, support of the input I'm sure most monks and nuns decide to take up this practice for sort of reflection and sending out good vibes to the world and all 
really sort of quiet things. But they would put that aside. So many of them would put that aside and they would come and spend time with the children and they would do little meditation classes or there was one nun who wrote songs for them. Um, We are all one family. Remember that one? Um, So we had that kind of support no matter what they thought they were going to get, a bit like me, I suppose, when they came to a monastery. They were willing to come along and, and make contact with the children. And, and the children really loved it. They appreciated it so much. And I have to mention the campfires. Mm. I'm sitting next to the campfire aficionado here who would be there every night till late, late hours. And the children would have informal time with Ajahn Amaro, with Ajahn Atapemo, with the nuns, with Sister Tanisra, Sister Abbasara, lots of people who from the Sangha would come over and would make real, real human contact with these children, which they don't they might not see in a formal situation. So it was really, really good for them. That's how it's grown and changed over the years. And uh, we're going full circle because I haven't been for 20 years. I told my children when they were 18 that they had to make space for the new generation of children. I said, you can't hog this. You have to get out, start going to adult retreats and make space for the next lot of little ones to come in. I wish I hadn't really because we kind of stopped going to family camp at that point. But now my little granddaughter, Rosita Chiquita, she's going to come in June. All those daughters are coming back again with their children and we've gone full circle. That's lovely. It's really a joyous thing to bring your children here. Please well, put your name on the waiting list and hope you get pulled out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. So I'm just uh, many fond memories come back. Uh, I think the youngest members of our monastic community ever were Medina's twin daughters. Um, they were kind of mini Gary cars. They were had little white robes, and they didn't shave their heads, but they were and they they came and they followed the monastic routine. Ate one meal a day, and it was—they were impressive eaters. <laughs> Little <coughs> the twin daughters, and they were only like eight when they came, and they were they, so they took the eight precepts uh, and were sort of uh, mini Gary cars for a week or two weeks, and uh, conducted themselves very impressively. So, uh, and let, we, I don't know how it'll be for the coming generations, but it was a, a very uh, a wonderful memory from those earliest days. <laughs> when the twins asked Ajahn Samedo if they could be mini Garikas, he said, um, he tried, he didn't, I don't know if he was trying to put them off, but he said, well, it's not easy. He said, you're going to have to find out what the rules are, what the precepts are, eight precepts. And they said, okay. So they went away and found out that eight years old. He said, you're going to have to make your own robes and you're going to have to find somebody to sponsor you to buy the fabric. Yes, that's okay. So they found somebody to sponsor them for the fabric. They found Ajahnu Pekka to help them to sew it together. And then he said, and you will have to keep noble silence. (laughs) And they went. (laughs) And they did. (laughs) 